0: I'd like to welcome everybody back today, Alabama Care. We have the pleasure of having Mrs. Shannon Dye of Carney Dye LLC uh, attorney offices with us today. And we are going to be talking about choosing the best special needs trust vehicle for you and your family. Uh, and at this point, I'd like to hand it over, Mrs. Dye, if you would introduce yourself.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Alex. Thanks for having me. Um, my name is Shannon Dye. Um, I'm an attorney. I practice here at Kearney Dye. You may have seen my law partner here before, um, Jack Kearney. We practice together, it's just the two of us, and we have a small practice doing estate planning and estate administration uh, here in Birmingham, Alabama.
0: And are you originally from Alabama?
1: I'm actually originally from Tennessee, uh, Chattanooga area, and moved down to Birmingham to attend Birmingham Southern College and Met my husband there, and then we both went to law school at Samford University, uh, Cumberland School of Law, and then, you know, just stayed here because why not?
0: <laughs> it's beautiful down here.
1: It is. It has the best combination of, you know, southern town and, you know, some of the amenities of a, a larger town without being a large town, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like, for example, just the restaurants and shopping and different things like that, so...
0: I did hear a few years ago that it had the opportunity to be kind of the Atlanta of the South, a bigger city, but we kind of declined at that point. Like the Atlanta Falcons could have been the Birmingham Falcons.
1: Yeah. You know, you talk to people in Birmingham and they're like, we don't want to be Atlanta. I mean, I think that's the major thing I hear from people. I think the people who want to be in Atlanta move to Atlanta and who want to stay in Birmingham just don't want that.
0: (laughs) I agree. Um, So why law? Why did you decide to go into law?
1: Well, for me, I think, well, I come from a family of lawyers. I'm actually a fourth generation attorney, a first female in my family. And, um, you know, kind of grew up watching my dad um, practice law. And I always kind of wondered, well, what does he actually really do? I don't know that I ever really fully understood it until I actually went to law school myself. But um, for me, I always had a passion for um, you know, advocating for others. I think I enjoy talking. I enjoy the counseling aspect of law. And at one point I actually considered getting my PhD in psychology, um, and going through and becoming a psychologist. That's what my under undergraduate degree is in. Um, but once I kind of got into the weeds on it, I, you know, sort of determined that wasn't for me, um, and just sort of went the law school route, which actually has a lot of similarities to psychology.
0: (laughs) Yeah Uh, and why kind of this specific area?
1: Yeah it's a good question you know um, when I first started practicing so I've been practicing 10 years now um, and when I first started practicing you know I graduated in kind of a rough time you know we were kind of in the midst of the recession in 2010 with jobs and so um, I actually started out my career in litigation you know forming you know Started out on the plaintiff side doing some personal injury representing plaintiffs and then moved over to the defense side ultimately, you know, representing insurers and, and different things like that. And I just sort of I got to a point in my career where I kind of thought, well, I guess one, who am I really helping? You know, uh, I'm just sometimes feel like I'm just pushing papers around a desk and and two, you know, I'm I'm protecting insurance companies. I mean, who really wants to, you know, do that? You don't really get the warm fuzzies from doing that. And then two, I really just kind of importantly wanted to kind of get on the front end of kind of helping people solve problems before it got to that point of, you know, litigation and an argument. And so I, you know, sort of decided, hey, I think I may want to do something more like, you know, estate planning, you know, things like that, where I feel like I could actually help people put a plan in place and Long story short, Jack and I knew each other, my husband and he were friends. And so we kind of hooked up and started working together on a case-by-case basis. And then that just sort of developed into a partnership.
0: Now, you mentioned there that you felt like um, there are a lot of things that could be taken care of before getting to court. You feel like that's the case in a lot of trials?
1: I do, I do. I feel like communication, you know, if people had communicated with each other more thoroughly, there would be a lot less, you know, trials and a lot less cases. Um, And then I think, too, especially in this area, I think proper planning can really alleviate a lot of issues. Like we have a lot of cases on the estate side that come in our door where we see, you know, maybe wills that were drafted poorly or weren't drafted with all the options or all the issues in mind. And I think that's something that maybe some practitioners are not aware of. And so we like to kind of stop all that on the front end. Um, You know, I feel like lawyers kind of get a bad rap sometimes for wanting to continue litigation so they can make more money. And that's really not what we're about. Actually, we like to try to avoid that at all costs. Mm -hmm. And I think we're a very family oriented firm. I think both Jack and I are families and, you know, all the people that work here with us, families are really important to us. And so we don't like to see families being torn apart because of money. It really
0: is important to talk about that ahead of time and get all the family together
1: yeah, uh, setting out expectations, uh, getting everybody on the same page with what's going to happen, you know, not necessarily leaving the surprise until, you know, once you're gone, you know, sometimes setting those expectations on the front end can really help.
0: And I've mentioned it before in past broadcasts with Carney Dye, um, but you guys have helped my family in that path. So um, I really appreciate the, what you guys have done for us. Well, what um, happened to help? Now, you mentioned courts, so the court's back open now.
1: So they are uh, in limited capacity, not as much here in Jefferson County, but we actually practice all over the state. And so um, I was in Lowndes County, Alabama on Monday, which is down close to Montgomery, Okay. Uh, kind of on the way to Selma. And so courts in some of the smaller, more rural communities are basically functioning like normal. Um, but the ones around here are still kind of functioning via Zoom and and all those sorts of things. So we're doing a kind of a variety.
0: Yeah, kind of switching it up, uh, a yeah. hybrid model right now. That's right. <laughs> okay, well, I'm gonna go ahead and um, share my screen here and we will jump into the PowerPoint presentation. Uh, and once again, today we're gonna be talking about the special needs estate planning and choosing the best vehicle to care for your loved one. Now, can you see this, Mrs. Dye? Yes. Okay, perfect. Um, so go ahead and introduce uh, Carney Die once again.
1: Yeah, definitely. So Carney Die LLC, we're kind of a small firm here in Birmingham. Again, we do practice throughout the state, um, and our practice areas generally wills, estate planning, uh, special needs planning is a particular niche of ours, uh, estate administration. So that's basically when you die, you know, everything that happens after that, administering the estate, um, trust administration, and representing trustees. We also handle guardianship, conservatorship matters, and some business succession planning. And uh, once again, it's Jack Carney and myself, and we also have an associate, Jennifer McInerney, who I believe has been on the, the podcast as well, or the, yep. me, the, the presentation. Broadcast,
0: podcast, podcast. show. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so we're excited to have you on today because uh, this rounds out three of you guys. That's
1: right. I'm the last. <laughs> yeah.
0: um, kind of a side question. Are you guys looking to bring on additional attorneys?
1: Um, you know, with us, it just sort of all depends on how things are going, but I think right now we're kind of at capacity with seeing how 2020 is gone and kind of where business is going for 2021.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, Okay. Let's go to the next slide here. Okay. Uh, Estate planning.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I kind of wanted to bring this up, but just on the forefront, when you're sitting down to think about if you have a child or a loved one with special needs, um, what is the proper way to start thinking about planning for what happens, you know, and of course, none of us want to think about what happens when I'm gone, but you know, I feel like it's a gift and it's, it's a present that you give to your family by go ahead and pre-planning for these things. Um, so one of the biggest concerns that you need to think about when you're doing that is how are you going to manage the assets for the child's benefit? Meaning when I die, if I had a child with special needs, I'm leaving behind money in theory, you know, assuming I die having anything. Um, I'm leaving behind at least, you know, probably a home, um, maybe a checking account, maybe an insurance policy, you know, so how do I want the management of those assets to sort of take place and what does that look like? And then the second concern when thinking about that is that you should go into your planning is government benefits. and. You know either one is my child already receiving some type of government benefit and we'll go into a little bit more detail about what that looks like in a minute mm-hmm. um, but a lot of those are needs-based benefits meaning you know what they own asset and income-wise affects whether they qualify for those benefits so i just put generally there you know if they have assets over two thousand dollars that they inherit from someone that's going to disqualify them from benefits
0: And the reason being is the state and the federal government are saying, well, if this person has, you know, X amount of money, then they should be able to pay for some of these benefits.
1: That's right. That's right. And I understand that argument and I agree with it to a certain extent, although I think sometimes it's a little short-sighted in that they don't know all the costs that go into caring for someone who has, you know, those special needs. So, but they have come up with this, you know, alternative, you know, these alternative options, uh, most particularly special needs trusts that kind of help alleviate that issue.
0: Mm -hmm. So those assets can be put in there and they don't affect any of the, if that individual is currently receiving benefits and benefits would be uh, like ID waivers or food stamps or those kinds of things.
1: Right. Yeah. The federal government actually put in place, um, you know, uh, legislation that allows for the setting up of these trusts and you can actually fund money you know depending on where and we can talk about that in a minute but where the money comes from you know you can deal with it a different way but as long as the money's in there it's held for their benefit so it's only spent on that individual but they still can qualify for those needs-based assistance like medicaid or ssi are generally some of the most often seen you know benefits that we have
0: Mm And those can add up to a lot of support over the years.
1: That's right. I mean, SSI is, you know, $786, I think is the max that you can get, you know, currently, it goes up a little bit with each year. So I haven't seen the number I think traditionally goes up and they release it in January or February, um, what it's gonna be for the following year. But, you know, it goes up a little bit each year, but I mean, really, you know, that money is designed to be spent on housing, um, which, you know, even in Alabama, which is not, you know, the most expensive state for housing. I mean, $783 a month doesn't get you very far about mm-hmm. paying rent and, you know, paying for utilities, you know, all that that's supposed to be covered with that. So let's say I'm getting SSI. I got to allocate my SSI money over here to pay for those things. But then I don't have money to buy food. I don't have money to have a phone. I don't have money to have, a, you know, television you know, none of these things that I can pay for that are extra, that are not covered by, you know, SSI. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's what the special needs trust is designed to pay for. You'll also hear it sometimes referred to as a supplemental needs trust, which I think is a good way to think about it because it supplements those, you know, government benefits, what they are designed to pay for.
0: I like that uh, supplemental needs trust instead of special needs trust. Right. Right. Uh, um, yeah, on that SSI and expecting to pay for those types of things, you have to have uh, at least a roommate, you know, right. in order to make, make ends meet. Uh, yeah, I don't I mean, think I could. The fu-
1: area, I can't really think of, you know, an apartment, you know, that you could get a single for that price that would be in an area, area you would feel safe living in.
0: Yeah. And the uh, real estate market right now has gone crazy. It Interest is, rates are low. Enough
1: housing, you know, and so they can charge what they want. It's crazy. Mm-hmm
0: it's it's tough i know housing is a big uh thing in the community
1: it is it definitely is
0: <clears throat> okay let's go back to the powerpoint here and we'll go to the next slide okay estate so, planning
1: yeah exactly so this is again you know just kind of talking about the primary purpose of talking about special needs planning is to preserve eligibility for those needs-based benefits that we kind of referred to already and just given some examples there the medicaid being the number one so that's you know what your insurance is, basically, and then your supplemental security income, which again is for people who have uh, special needs, but maybe don't qualify for disability sometimes. And that's an important distinction to make, because I'll have people come in and say, they'll just generally use the term disability, but they don't really know what that means. And so there's a large difference between SSI, which is the supplemental security income, which is what I was referring to at the 783 a month, And then there's um, the SSDI, which is based on a work record. So somebody has to have actually worked, paid into the system, and then they get a disability payment based on what, you know, they earned over their, you know, kind of work lifetime.
0: Now, that SSDI, could that be something like uh, an accident happened on the job? That's right,
1: yeah. So if you were disabled at work, you know, maybe there's some kind of workers' compensation component of that. I mean, ultimately, a lot of those people end up, applying for disability if they're not able to return to work, you know, even in their own field or in another field. Um, The good thing about SSDI is that that is not needs-based, so that's why it's important to kind of distinguish that from SSI because if someone comes into my office and they say, I need to set up a special needs trust because I'm on disability, but it's true disability, they don't really have to have the special needs trust, so they could have the disability and still have inheritance in their name or proceeds from a lawsuit settlement, you know, maybe the, the accident that caused the injury that were, you know, resulted in you being disabled, you ultimately got, you know, some kind of award, a court award or some kind of settlement. Well, if that, you know, you're truly on disability, then you don't need the special needs trust hmm. aspect of things, you know, there are different kind of ways that we can set up to protect that money for you, but the special needs trust is not necessary.
0: I feel like you must go through a book this thick (laughs) to find all those things of how to navigate that. Well,
1: it is like uh, they have this. It's stupid. And you may have heard Jack mention this before, but they have this thing called the Palms, which is the Social Security Administration Manual. And yes, we do nerdily sometimes have to look through that and kind of figure out. And, you know, the regulations are always changing and they're sort of internal regulations. So they're sometimes hard to look at.
0: Yeah.
1: But yeah, it's it's a lot of nuanced uh, things that you have to understand.
0: I imagine you guys pass that book around the office and everybody's got a different (laughs) color highlighter. That's right.
1: That's right. Well, you know, if there were an actual, you know, book, that would be great. But, you know, a lot of those things we're having to access online we're printing it off and, you know, making notes on it and stuff like that. So yeah, that would be Um, nice though if we could just get a paper copy.
0: I didn't know there was a difference there. I thought everything had to be, if someone was on a disability, I thought they had to have some type of trust. Um, that they could still receive benefits. So that's something new that I did not know.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then I just mentioned two others there, you know, the Section 8 housing and, you know, if you're getting SNAP benefits, you know, or WIC, something like that, it can also help, you know, depending on the state, you know, you qualify for those benefits as well.
0: Mm -hmm. And it can be tough going to these programs, the SNAP, the SSI, Mm -hmm. and the Medicaid I'm familiar with. It takes a while to get set up and in there, but once you're in there, uh, it, it's very worth it. So please put up the time to make that investment. Absolutely. Okay, let's let's go to the next slide here.
1: Okay, so um, so what, again, most of the needs-based programs have these asset and income tests that determine basically how do you qualify for the programs. So those are the two areas when you're looking at it. Okay, well, can I get Medicaid? Okay, what are my income and assets? And just generally speaking, you can't have more than 2,000 in income per month and you can't have more than 2,000 in assets. So you know, whatever the value of the assets that you own in your personal name, if you're the individual that's trying to qualify, uh, cannot be more than uh, a value of $2,000.
0: I have a question about that. Let's say that your SSI for one month puts you above that $2,000 for a few days before you pay rent. Mm-hmm. Now, is it the average of that month or is it any specific day they choose to look at it?
1: So, you know, it just sort of depends on when they look at it. You know, generally, if we're talking about, hey, you know, I've had income this month, let's say I got $2,500 this month instead of $2,000 in income. Well, What they'll do is do a a dollar for dollar reduction just for that month um, in your benefit. And so if that's something that continues, then that's going to be an issue. But if it's just a one month problem, that's not going to necessarily push you over the limit.
0: Okay, because I I think that would be a little bit of a concern for somebody if they were able to receive a bonus somehow for doing some freelance work or something like that. Uh, You want people to go after those opportunities and not have to think about losing some other things.
1: That's right. That's right. Um, And, you know, it's something that we can talk about, you know, later in the, in the, in the um, presentation, but there's also something that I'm going to mention called an ABLE account that could be an option for them to utilize, you know, for that extra income that comes in that's over the 2000.
0: Uh, And assets, what exactly are assets? So there's income that you have every month, but talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, assets. So that's kind of like the things that I own, like for me, my home my car, um, you know, if I owned a second home, if I owned, um, I don't know, a really, really valuable piece of art, you know, different things like that, um, they're going to assign a value to those. Now, the good news is that for purposes of Alabama Medicaid and SSI, there are what we call exempt assets or exempt resources. So the home is exempt. So they don't take that into account when they're figuring up the $2,000 figure, which is good because obviously nobody owns a house that's only worth
0: $2,000.
1: And then, you know, the car is also an exempt resource. So, you know, you don't have to have a really old car with a lot of mileage on it so that you can still stay on benefits. You know, they realize that those are, you know, resources that people need um, and so if you own a home you own a car those don't count against you.
0: Hmm. I thought they did so that's news and news to me as well. Yeah. Now can you put a house in a trust? Can you put you a can. car in a trust? Yeah,
1: absolutely. So you can own one in your individual name outright and you know depending on the situation that may or may not be the right thing to do. Sometimes that's based on the individual's ability, you know, where they are because um you know even though we're talking about special needs, you know that's you know, a huge spectrum, right? So that's somebody who has total capacity, you know, I've had clients have come in, maybe they've been in an accident, they have a traumatic brain injury or something like that, but they still have capacity and the ability to make, you know, financial decisions for themselves. You know, they've just suffered this injury that's, you know, kind of hindered them a little bit. Um, But then the other side of the spectrum is, you know, somebody who's totally incapacitated, can't talk, can't make decisions for themselves, you know, and then everything in between that. So some of that decision about whether they own the home or the trust owns the home depends on their individual situation, you know. Um, And then sometimes too, it depends on their family situation. Like who is their caregiver? Do they have a trustworthy person in their life to help take care of them or to manage those things? Because part of the big decision with regard to a trust is, the trustee, who's going to be in charge of those managing those monies for them? And so the answer to that question, typical lawyer is it depends. Um, but I would say generally, you know, I say about, I guess, 50-50 with regard to whether they own the home individually in their own name or whether the trust owns the home.
0: It sounds like there is uh, no two trusts the same. They may be structured similarly, but each individual, each family uh, has different needs there. Uh, you mentioned um, some concern from the families about the, the trustee. What are some concerns that you typically hear from families that are approaching this subject? What are some fears there?
1: Well, I think, you know, from a perspective of, you know, because there's a couple of ways to look at it. But if you're looking at it from a perspective of a parent who has a child with special needs, which is a large base of you know people that I'm helping, um, they're thinking about who's going to be there for the long term to help care for this person, because they know they're not going to be, you know, the child's going to outlive them. Um, Even if like, for example, in my own family, I have a brother who's autistic um, and, you know, he is my half brother. So, you know, my dad and stepmom are always, you know, talking with us about, well, what is kind of the next step? And, you know, are you going to be there to help care for him, you know, one day? And so we're always talking through these issues Um, But, you know, some families don't have anyone, you know, they don't have a sibling who can help care for them or, you know, maybe their other children are not trustworthy, you know, or they wouldn't necessarily want them to, or maybe they live on the other side of the country and it's not realistic for them to move from California to Alabama to care for, you know, their brother or sister. And so, you know, that's one of the concerns that I hear about is number one, who's going to care for them. You know daily and especially with regard to the trust who's going to take care of the money and not because i mean in theory you know if you put a trustee in there and they raided the trust funds i mean they're they're going to be held accountable but somebody's got to discover that right mm-hmm. so it's kind of who's overseeing that person so i think it's really important to think about that when you're deciding on a trustee you know you need somebody who's trustworthy But also somebody who's not going to get easily overwhelmed by the job because it is a detailed job you know of keeping up with somebody and who has some minimal financial knowledge you know that's kind of the struggle i hear on the other perspective of like a personal injury client who's inherited you know all of a sudden five million dollars who's out there that's going to take advantage of them you know and that's the other side of it that you see that you got to really be careful And sometimes, unfortunately, that's even the parents that are the ones you got to worry about. And so I'm working with attorneys and other advisors to kind of help, you know, prevent those things from happening.
0: Yeah, you hear stories about that. And I've heard them in sports before where somebody's a young kid gets signed to an NHL team. His parents are his manager and, you know, he gets out of the league. He's got nothing to show for it.
1: Yeah. And it's sad, but unfortunately happens. And so that's why, you know, in that situation, you know, maybe if you're somebody who's inheriting $5 million or $10 million, maybe, you know, you go corporate trustee, you get a bank in there, you get somebody who's got some insurance and who's, you know, going to be a little more accountable to some higher up authorities, you know, to kind of manage those assets.
0: I imagine the, the, the trade there is they might not be Uh, seeing that individual on a much more regular basis.
1: That's right. And that can be a problem. You know, we do build in some provisions in there um, that, you know, typically, and I've had this requested by some, you know, attorneys and, and family members that I've worked with that there be a requirement that they visit with the beneficiary, you know, once a quarter or something like that, so that they know you know, hey, if they're not making this visit, they have no idea what's going on with this person. They're not gonna know what their needs are. And so we try to build in those types of protections for them to kind of make sure that that's happening.
0: Can you do a dual trustee where you could have like a corporate trustee and then also like a family member?
1: Absolutely, so you can do a co-trustee situation, which is kind of what you were referring to there where you have multiple trustees. Um, You can also do what we call, a it's kind of a new term, but it's called a trust protector. Um, and you may or may not have heard of this before, but it's basically so. Let's say I have Regions Bank as my trustee, but then I name a family member as the trust protector, and they are not the trustee; they're not the fiduciary, but they have certain powers that they can, you know, you know, kind of use over the trustee. So, for example, if they saw the trustee wasn't doing a good job, they weren't doing what they should, they could remove the trustee. Mm -hmm. Um, And they could replace them with somebody else, you know, now not themselves, you know, we usually build that in like you can't just take out regions and say, okay, (laughs) Um, but, you know, we can build in those safeguards because in theory that family member, you know, I mean, even if regions is going out once a quarter, they're not going to be maybe as in tune as that family member that's with them on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, even maybe that family member is the caregiver You know the one that's there 24 seven, but maybe they just don't have the capacity or the ability to manage a trust because it's not an easy job. Yeah, Um, and so that's a good you know fit for that relationship. It does.
0: You have to be good with the numbers, and you have to you know have to know how to navigate that and be in correspondence with the government. That's right. uh, with the IRS and, and all those things, so it can be kind of like an accountant job there. Now, if there was a family coming to me asking for that and didn't have somebody that they wanted to be a trustee that they thought they could do everything, that seems like a perfect scenario. Uh, bring in a co-trustee where mm-hmm. you have somebody do the accounting and fiduciary, right? Uh, as a corporation, and then you have a family member there.
1: That's right. Yeah, it can really be the best of both worlds. I think um, you know because um, you've got the bank or the trust company that does that on a regular basis, they're familiar with it. You know, one of the concerns I get a lot when I bring up the subject of a corporate trustee is, well, how much is that going to cost? I was just going to ask, yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, I get that, but at the same time, I've seen people come in because we represent trustees as well that have come into my office and said, individuals, what's the most, you know, what's the highest fee I can take? I want to take that you know, because individuals are entitled to take a fee as well under the law, and so I think a lot of times what people don't realize is that, well, first of all, that the corporate trustee has a set rate that they charge usually for the trust services, and you know that up front. Usually they have a schedule that they'll tell you and it's something like between one and one and a half percent of the value of the trust, you know, and they charge that on an annual basis. But, you know, that includes, like, again, they're doing all the legwork, they're filing the taxes, they're handling the investments, they're doing all those things. And I think in the grand scheme, when you look at that, the value that you're getting there, like if you were to divide it up and say, have an individual trustee, but you got somebody else over here managing the money, we've got the money manager making a fee, you've got the individual making a fee, you got the accountant you got to pay, you know, different things like that. And so I think when you add all that up, you know, the fee that the corporate trustees charge, if there's enough there, I mean, there has to be enough there to make sense.
0: Like I'd For say, the generally, corporation.
1: you know, generally a million dollars, you know, maybe 800, something like that. When you're looking at a big bank or trust company, um, anything under 500, I would say individual trustee is the way to go. And there's some other options we could talk about later in the presentation. Too. Um,
0: yeah, let's jump back into the slides here. We kind of got off off uh, track, which I enjoy <laughs> Those are one um, of the
1: best conversations happen.
0: I love it. Yeah. So I always have these, I always have a series of questions and I find that at the end of the conversation, we're all the way over here and I've only got to ask about half the questions.
1: Oh, well, but, hopefully you'll get to ask them all this time. Yeah.
0: No, but that's <laughs> the conversations I like. Okay. Uh, go ahead. Common questions here.
1: Yeah. So a lot of times people ask me when we're talking about planning, how much do I need to set aside? And so, you know, some of that, you know, some of the, factors that affect that are, well, how many children do you have, you know, do you have four or is this your only child? And so sometimes I'll get that question about, well, if I have multiple children, is it okay for me to leave more for the disabled child versus the other children? And, you know, of course, nobody knows the answer to that, but the individual who's planning, but I usually say, just think about it in terms of the fact that, okay, if you have one disabled child and three non-disabled children, you know, the income earning ability of those non-disabled children is, you know, high. You know, the earning ability for your disabled child is likely much lower, if any, right? Depending on their individual situation. Um, So I think it seems, it's fair in my mind to leave that child more because they're going to need it over their lifetimes versus the other children who are gonna be able to go out and have jobs and earn
0: income. I imagine that can be a, a, a tough topic for the family.
1: It is. And sometimes, you know, there's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. This is where the counselor part comes in. There's a lot of baggage that comes with that, you know, because there's history there. Um, you know, the other siblings might have feelings about that. Um, mm-hmm. They don't want, you know, the mom and dad don't want their feelings to be hurt, which is important to take into account as well, because you don't want it to tear You don't want face. it to
0: break up a family.
1: That's right. That's right. I mean, so you gotta consider all those factors.
0: I've had my family come the cahoots over elections and I'm like, guys, what are you doing? We wake up, we pour the same cup of coffee, we I love each other. A whole
1: family and yeah. we come to all love each other. So I mean, I think most siblings, you know, speaking of as someone who has a sibling with special needs, I think most siblings, you know, probably have their own baggage that comes along with that, but I think that they understand practically if they're a reasonable rational person at the end of the day that that makes sense Mm. you know that that it makes sense to provide maybe even if it's just a little more you know for that person or maybe you provide in other ways for your other children like you set aside a particular large life insurance policy that just goes to pay for the you know the special needs child Mm. and you put that in their trust and then maybe whatever else you have you split equally you know there's different things we can do and we kind of walk clients through those scenarios if they want to talk about it, you know, about the best way to kind of fund those trusts and kind of work it out
0: with amongst the family members. Awesome. Let's go back to the uh slideshow here. Okay. Uh a fair allocation trying to the capacity. To yeah, I think so.
1: we covered that pretty much.
0: Yep. Um planning tip.
1: Okay, so this is kind of what I was getting to a second ago is the life insurance policy this can be a good tool and I don't sell life insurance. so I'm not trying to sell anybody on this (laughs) It is what we call a second to die life insurance policy. So this is a life insurance policy that's actually on mom and dad. Let's say there's two individuals whose lives are insured. And so the policy doesn't pay out until the second one of them passes away. So you know, in theory, the insurance company is getting a longer term of payments. You know, it's a little bit lower cost to provide, usually. Um, and then it pays out upon the second death. Um, and so it can be a lot more affordable for families with special needs because, you know, a lot of times uh, families with special needs struggle because, you know, there's usually one parent that has to be the full time caregiver for that individual. And so their income is lower than what it maybe was prior to having that child. Um, and so, you know, finding efficient affordable options for them to you know fund that trust because the trust is no good if you don't fund it with anything right you got to have something to go in there of course you got to be able to live so you don't want to put all the money that you have you know during your lifetime into this trust and not be able to you know put a roof over your head um so it's a good option i think for families to explore
0: no, I've noticed that in my family. I have a family member that has an uh, intellectual disability and she does not have the capacity to work. And my uh, grandmother had to stop working and take care of her full time, which, you know, have the income for the family at that point. Right. And, you know, you hear these stats where it's like X amount of people over 55 have a savings long term. Um, and, and it's not as much as we'd like it to be, uh, that right. percentage of, of families. So it it, it can be hard to save significantly to put into a trust. And this is a great way that you're saying you can break that up into right. monthly payments um, that at the passing of both uh, parents, there would be a good chunk of change. Now, what typically, how, how much is a good chunk of change out of one of those life insurance policies?
1: Um, I'm not sure usually what the monthly premiums, but I think you can get one for something like a few hundred dollars a month, You know, maybe the two to $300 a month range. Um, and if you can set aside a little bit like that and then you can get, you know, like a million dollars, you know, in premium, I mean, in in benefit um, paid out, you know, at up on the second death, you know, and sometimes more, it just sort of depends on, you know, all those insurance agent things like, you know, your age and your health and, and all those things. But um, it's a good tool to explore for sure.
0: And then at that point, you can just live off the interest and the dividends.
1: That's right. Yeah.
0: yeah. Now we'll get into it a little bit here, but I saw that um, with some of the trust, you could manage the investments. Can you do that through all?
1: With the trust, yeah. I, so, I'll do,
0: mm-hmm. one, two. I see three different trusts here that we'll talk about today. Um, right. Can you decide where you want to allocate that in equity in the stock market? Absolutely. So the
1: benefit of you know a trust versus maybe a conservatorship or some other kind of vehicle is that you have more control over how those investments are made. Uh, Now there's one, maybe a small exception for what we'll get to on the pooled trusts, which I'll talk about, but you know, the individual trust. So the first party trust or the third party trust, you know, basically you can set up the trust and then you can invest the assets how you see fit. So if you're more conservative in your investment strategy, you can do bonds or mutual funds or whatever makes you comfortable. Versus if you you kind of feel like, okay, I really need some growth over time. You know, I can invest in a little bit more aggressive strategy. Um, and then you know, I'm not going to need it for. You know, you can you can always obviously we never know when we're going to die, but you can guess like when you're going to need it for that child. Um, and, you know, then you can kind of invest it accordingly.
0: Um, I like the ability to do that, but you have to be, you know, you can't go YOLO on the stock market and then 2008 happens.
1: No, definitely not. And that's why I think it is nice that, you know, you maybe have some different things in there, like the life insurance policy option, you know, the real estate option, you know, so you can kind of hedge your bets a little bit.
0: Yeah. Okay. Let's go back to the um, presentation here. Uh, Click on this. Okay, we'll go to the next slide. Special Needs Trust.
1: Right, so again, this is kind of what we've been kind of getting to the whole time is the Special Needs Trust. So this is the primary tool that we utilize as planners to kind of accomplish the goals for planning for individuals with special needs and protecting and preserving their assets. So this is the vehicle that allows you to put money into it for the benefit of your disabled loved one, and then the trust, the assets are held in the trust and can be used for their care and only their care. Um, and it does not disqualify them from needs-based benefits.
0: I like how you use the word vehicle in a lot of these because it's separate from the individual.
1: That's right, it is, yeah.
0: Okay, let's keep going. Uh, yeah, he's a perfect example.
1: Yeah, so here we have just a small example. So Bob is a disabled adult. He gets the 783 a month from social security and he has medicaid as his only health insurance so you know if he didn't have that insurance he'd be paying about four thousand a month out of pocket for his prescriptions so bob's mom dies she leaves him thirty six thousand dollars and then at the next first of the next month he loses his benefit because he had that reduction and a lot more than the two thousand in assets so he's going to lose his medicaid coverage and then he'll actually have to spend all that thirty six thousand well $34,000 Thirty-four thousand dollars down, and it will be, you know, spent within five to seven months, um, and then he's going to have to requalify for benefits. And I think Alex, you mentioned earlier, you kind of been through that process. It's not an easy process to go through, and it's Couple not something you want to do multiple times. Uh,
0: it's a pain. Don't is if you're on benefits, you know, use these vehicles to make sure you stay on them because
1: that's that's right. And so then at the end of the day, he's five to seven months down the road, but he's back to where he started. You know, he didn't really gain anything by inheriting that money.
0: So the mom can put the the will in the trust that 36 grand in the trust. Right. So
1: that's the solution is she utilizes the trust. She can put it in the trust. Bob stays on benefits. It doesn't affect his Medicaid or his SSI. And then he can spend that 36,000 if he needs it, or he can invest it grow it over time, or I say he, the trustee, the trustee for Bob's trust is the one who does it, Bob can't do it himself. The trustee can, you know, invest it if he feels like, oh, that's not something Bob needs right away. Because let's say, other than his prescriptions, he doesn't really have a lot of needs outside of that. Mm -hmm. I mean, he may not need that money for several years. And so if he's got a way to maybe invest it and grow a little bit, then that's the best way to go for him.
0: Yeah, I mean, you can invest that, grow it a little bit, and then have the trust purchase a house if you want it.
1: That's right. Yeah, exactly. Say, let's say he just needs like a $125,000 house, you know, just something to live in. And then he has a place to live. He doesn't have to worry about paying rent anymore, you know, different things like that. It's a great scenario for him.
0: Okay, let's go to that. Yeah, so the solution.
1: Yes. Yeah, so then again, this is, well, if she left it to a special needs trust, then again, she's going to have those, he's going to have those assets available, basically.
0: Uh, okay. Three, these are, I kind of was jumping around there. I knew we were getting to them.
1: <laughs> so again, this is what I sort of alluded to, but there's three types of special needs trust. So there's the first party trust. There's a third party trust and there's a pool trust. So I'm going to talk a little bit in detail about what the differences between those are.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, if you let's want to jump to, to yeah, the next yeah, so let's start with the third party trust. So this is a trust that's created by somebody um, other than the disabled individual. So it's created by a third party, hence the name. So this is mom creates a special needs trust for Bob. So she, you know, whether it's during her lifetime or at her death, puts money into this trust for Bob's benefit. It's not his money, it's never touched his hands. It goes into the special needs trust and then he can, you know, again, it can be invested by the trustee for his benefit. It can grow over time. And the most beautiful part about it is that there's no payback, which we'll talk about a little bit, that's related to the first party trust. And it can pass to other beneficiaries if something were to happen to Bob. So it looks, for example, if Bob has some kind of condition that Maybe he doesn't have a long life expectancy. You know, she can still leave the money there for him. And then when he's gone, she can pass it to his brother.
0: Even if his brother does not have a a disability or qualify for benefits. Mm
1: -hmm. So then the money actually would leave the special needs trust and go outright to the brother.
0: Hmm.
1: And the special needs trust would terminate.
0: Okay. I got you. The, The special needs trust does have to terminate when the beneficiary passes away. That's right. Yep. Okay. Let's go to the next one here.
1: So again, the third party trust, basically you can it can be inter vivos or testamentary. So those are fancy ways of saying you either fund it during your lifetime or you fund it upon your death. So inter vivos being during life, testamentary would be upon death. So um, the nice part about the inter vivos trust is that you can draft it, it's effective immediately Um, Other family members could give to that trust. Like, let's say I set up a trust for my child with special needs. Well, my grandmother could also, you know, designate that trust in her will if she wanted to provide for my child. And so it kind of gives a vehicle for other family members to kind of allocate assets to as well. You know, uh, I guess the con of it sometimes is that it's a little more costly to set up, you know, than a testamentary special needs trust. And then two, you know, some people feel like it's burdensome with, you know, reporting and different things like that. If you don't immediately fund it, you know,
0: the IRS, not worth it. you
1: have to do some kind of reporting to the IRS and different things like that. So
0: now the, the money that goes in that has to, <clears throat> that money has to already have been taxed. Is there, is that correct?
1: That's right. Yeah.
0: Is there I mean, any way to
1: you designate, you know, like retirement assets to go to a special needs trust?
0: So you could do like a Roth IRA goes into a trust. Yes,
1: or a regular IRA. You know, there's with the new SECURE Act, you know, there's different laws that have come in up about how those, you know, um, assets that are held in a retirement account are taxed. But the good news is that a special needs trust, a disabled individual is actually exempted from those rules. And so they don't have to you know, the gist of the new requirements is that you have to take out all the money out of your retirement plan within 10 years of the person dying. Mm-hmm. Special needs trust beneficiary doesn't have to do that. They're exempted from that rule. And so they can mm-hmm. drag it out over time, which ends up with better tax, you know.
0: Implications and it allows the money to continue to grow. That's right. Compound interest, the eighth wonder of the world. That's right.
1: <laughs> I like that.
0: <laughs> uh Okay, let's go back to the screen here.
1: Um, so then the other type is the testamentary trust. So that's the one that's established under the will. It's, you know, it's less costly to set up, but it can only come become effective upon their death. So that would be the ideal scenario with all I'm going to have in the trust is a life insurance policy. You know, the life insurance policy pays out when I die. That's when the trust comes into effect. You're good to go.
0: Okay. So a little bit. Of I kind of like, can you do both? Can you do like a monthly contribution where anybody else can and do it? And then also.
1: Right. Uh, you probably just want to set up one because I think once you have the inner vivos, like the inner vivos is kind of like the Cadillac and the testamentary is kind of like the Chevy, you know, I mean, both will get you there. It's just a matter of, do you need the bells and whistles of the one or the other?
0: Gotcha. Uh, okay. Let's go to first party trust
1: okay so the first party trust different from the third party trust so this is the i mean i don't have a good way to say this it's the less good version of the third party trust it is created very similarly with the assets of the disabled beneficiary you know the money goes into there provides for their you know benefits their sole benefit for life they must be under age 65 that's something important to note um And, you know, they're able to qualify for needs-based benefits. But, and this is the big but, is it has to include a payback clause
0: in it. What does that mean? You've said that a couple minutes ago. I wrote it down. No payback.
1: (laughs) So payback is essentially you have to, and this is the trade-off provision that the government has kind of given us, is that, okay, it can go in here, you know, qualify, good to go. But when they die, Medicaid is going to be paid back for all the benefits they expended on that beneficiary's behalf during their lifetime. So not just from the time of the creation of the trust for their whole lifetime. So if, for example, you have somebody that was on Medicaid prior to inheriting money, you know, it's going to go all the way back. So potentially, usually it's going to be exhausted.
0: um, Let's do a hard example. So if someone is in a car accident at 55 um, starts receiving services, um, at 55 and at 70 inherits $2 million goes into a first party trust. Mm -hmm. Uh, when that person dies away at 80 or 90, um, the Medicaid's going to come back and say, well, we spent this much, um, in services, let's just say 50 grand a year or whatever that is benefits there. We're going to recoup this out of that.
1: Yeah, that's right. So the payback dates back all the way to when they first, you know, got on to benefits.
0: Why would you do a first party over a third party?
1: Well, you have to. So the difference there is the the first party is it's being funded with monies that belong to the beneficiary. So whereas the third party trust is mom and dad or some other third party's money, never touch the beneficiary's hands. The first party trust is really for Inheritance, like if that special needs beneficiary inherits money outright, or um, lawsuit settlement, you know, Mm -hmm. something like that. Those are the two typical scenarios that we see. Um, Another one is, uh, for example, if that, um, you know, maybe before we had able, you know, if the disabled individual did work some and earned some income, you know, it was really our only vehicle for maybe like a lump sum payment. Um, that they received for some kind of uh, work that they did. So that's the kind of key difference there is kind of once it touches that individual's hands, yeah, it has to go into a trust that has a payback. Gotcha. So we want to prevent it from touching their hands. So if at
0: all possible, instead yeah.
1: of, you know, Bob inheriting from mom and then Bob putting it into a trust, we would rather have mom set up the trust on her own and fund it so that Bob never gets it and the payback never comes into play.
0: Mm -hmm. I think that's the play there as well. Uh, Okay. Let's go back here. Um, Why the 65 must be under, so what happens if you get an accident, at 66.
1: So then your only option is pooled trust. Um, And I think a lot of it has to do with maybe Medicare, you know, all those sort of federal regulations that they want to kind of you know, put some little strings on it. Um, But the pool trust is a good planning tool for people who are over 65. In Alabama, we actually only have one. It's called the Alabama Family Trust. Uh, Different states have different ones. Um, But then that is the option for them to put in the first party money for people who are over age 65. Um, It's also a good tool for people who maybe have Like even people who are under 65, but maybe they have a smaller amount that were there, you know, let's say there was a lawsuit settlement, but it was a small amount and they're only getting $200,000, which I realize is a lot to a lot of us. But in terms of a lawsuit settlement, that's not going to go very far if they have to spend it down. And so they can put that into the pooled trust. And the nice part about that is that there's not the setup costs that maybe you're more involved with um the third party trust because those can be a little more costly to set up um or excuse me the first party trusts are a little more costly to set up because they're so intensive um so and then two with the investments you know the company alabama family trust can actually come in and it's called a pooled trust for this reason so they pool the resources of a lot of different individuals and then they leverage them investment wise for that so they can take like this, person 000, this person's $100,000, this person's $50,000, this person's 300 and put it all together and get a better investment
0: return. Get a better deal So on their money there. Now who manages that?
1: So Alabama Family Trust is a nonprofit. Uh, they're self-managed, I guess. And Warren Averett, who you might be familiar with here in Birmingham, I think is the one who manages their investments right now. Um,
0: i have to get I him on a broadcast theory. and be like, so tell me, what are you investing in?
1: Right. So they have one of those, you know, um, I think platforms usually where you choose like one of five plans, you know, where it's, I mean, it's not going to be as tailored as going to your own personal financial professional, but, you know, it's like,
0: more risk assessment,
1: income growth with income, you know, different set of sort of platforms that they have pre-designed depending on what your risk tolerance is and what your need
0: is. Now you mentioned that the first party trust is a little bit more to set up. How much do you think a first party trust is?
1: Right. So, I mean, just because it's a little more involved, you know, as far as the payback and getting all those provisions correct and the reporting that it's involved on our side, we have to get those trusts approved by social security and medicaid Um, well approved by medicaid and really a notice to social security but um you know and getting the trustees set up and you know making sure all the language is correct on those so it's a little bit more involved than third party Um, and we typically charge something like thirty five hundred dollars to do one of those
0: that's good information for the families just to budget out, um, thinking. Yeah,
1: yeah, definitely. And I realize that's, you know, when you're listening to this presentation, you're like, that sounds like a lot of money. And it is. Um, but, you know, we do and we have in the past, you know, worked with families who um, maybe needed to space that out over a few months or something like that. You know, we're always willing to work with people who, you know, might be interested. And I'm not saying you need to use us because there are a lot of good professionals Uh, in the Birmingham area, but if anybody did want to talk to us about that, you know, we're open to that as well.
0: Well, if they ask me, I'm saying use you guys.
1: (laughs) Well, thanks.
0: (laughs) Okay, let's go back to the slide here, Uh, and you kind of touched on that already, uh, the Alabama Family Trust.
1: Right, and so I've kind of linked the website there, um, and they have a good, you know, good tools on their website that you can go to, um, Alabama Family Trust, and, you know, just see there's a lot of downloadable materials that they have, um you know for as far as forms and their mission and again they're a 501c3 nonprofit so they're you know not making tons of money they're just doing this to help benefit you know people in the community and um
0: yeah so you if you got more information there i mean if if anybody's looking for there i'll put that link in the chat so we can go back to it anybody that wants to to yeah that'd be great and my computer screen froze up just a little bit here give it a second
1: they never cooperate when you want them to.
0: I know, I know. I had to restart my computer right before this because it was acting up a little bit. <laughs>
1: um,
0: okay, so we're on pool trust. Let's go to the next one here.
1: So again, this is one of the number one questions I get when I bring up the payback is, okay, well, how bad is that? So I think I mentioned this before, it's all the Medicaid preser- you know, services provided over the lifetime. Uh, there's no interest, which is good, I guess, um, but it's limited to the amount remaining in the trust. So typically, if we're talking about somebody who's been on Medicaid benefits for any length of time, um, you know, usually it's going to come close to exhausting the resources of the trust, just depending on how long the trust has been in existence and, um, you know, how many services they've had and what they've had to spend over the lifetime of the trust.
0: Um, Uh, Out of curiosity, from the number of clients that you guys help, what would you say percentage-wise is first-party versus third-party versus pooled?
1: um I'd say pool is the least percentage that we do but we do do some of those I'd say probably mainly third party which is good because we're planning on the front end you know usually people that are coming in to see us are thinking about these things in advance um so I'd say that's the majority of what we do and then the first party is probably the second most and a lot of times in that situation we're doing it with in conjunction with some kind of personal injury settlement that somebody's received um and we are usually called in by say like the plaintiff's attorney who says okay shannon i've gotten the settlement i have this client who's on benefits we need to go ahead and talk about setting up an snt for them so that they don't lose benefits Mm -hmm. and usually that's when i get involved in those
0: would you say um percentage Would you say 80 percent are third party somewhere around yeah, there.
1: Yeah, I'd say 70 to 80% or
0: third party. So that's a good figure because people are thinking about it ahead of time, like you said,
1: right, exactly.
0: Um, okay, let's go back to the screen here. Uh, payback clause The mechanics.
1: Yes. So, so just kind of keeping in mind who's involved when you're talking about a trust. So you have the grantor who's the person who's setting up the trust the creator. Um, And another term that we use a lot is the corpus. So this is basically what are the assets that are going into the trust and what's the amount. Um, The beneficiary is the individual who's going to be getting the benefit of the trust. And then the trustee is the one who's managing the trust.
0: So everybody needs to know those, uh, you know, if somebody talks about the beneficiary, you need to know that's the individual, Uh, the trustee is, it sounds like the trustee is the one that everybody kind of has a lot of questions about and worry about.
1: That's right. Yeah. It's kind of the big position when you're talking about creating a trust.
0: And what is your recommendation when someone comes and says, I want to set up a trust for um, my son? We don't know of anybody that could be a trustee. What do you kind of say there?
1: Um, You know, I usually say, again, depending on the amount, I think if the money is there, corporate trustee is the way to go. Just because I've seen it time and time again where people have individuals serving and those individuals may have just the best intentions in the world they are not trying to do anything wrong they are not trying to do anything underhanded but they just don't have the knowledge that's required to administer those trusts like i just give a good example of um and this has been several years ago but we had a gentleman who came in who was the executor under his father-in-law's will and he was also the trustee of um his sister-in-law Yes, sister-in-law's trust, special needs trust, and he was trying to kind of you know, juggle all these things, and he kind of came in and said that we need some help. Could you help me? And long story short, I found out he had taken all the money from the estate, all the money from the trust, and put them in the same account. Uh, (laughs) And again, he he explained that to me as, well, it was easier to manage that way, (laughs) and I get that, but you can't do that, you know, and so just looking at it from a just sometimes the simplest things that you think would be self-explanatory or not. And if people don't have the knowledge to be able to manage or the time, quite frankly, I mean, we're all busy, you know, that's the number one problem you hear about, you know, in society these days, although maybe not as much with Corona, Um, we're all busy. Um, We all have, you know, different families, relationships, jobs, whatever is keeping us busy. And so if being a trustee is not your job, how much attention are you really going to give to it? Are you going to be giving your full effort? Um, and in some cases you might, but in a lot of cases, probably not. So, and that's
0: that's okay. You just got to be upfront about it.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think confronting that and admitting it, you know, that I don't have the time or the resources to manage a trust on my own. So I need to call in a professional and, you know, maybe having a professional trustee involved. At bare minimum you need to have a financial person that's handling the investments i would say unless you're a financial advisor yourself which even then i don't know i think you still want to have somebody that's not you managing the investments um you know accountant you need all these tools in your tool belt Mm -hmm. but i think again kind of going back to what i said earlier corporate corporate trustee is just the best deal because you're getting all those services for one price and less hassle.
0: I think that's a great thing because I've spoken with families before and they're like, well, we're not sure who's going to be the trustee. Uh, And and you don't have to go into this meeting uh, having somebody already declared trustee in your mind.
1: No, definitely not. And we've helped people before just give them a few names, you know, maybe three names of people that we've worked with in the past that we know have done a good job on special needs trust. And I'll just say, reach out to them, talk to them, have a conversation, see if you feel like, because I think one of the other important considerations when you're looking at a trustee is fit. So especially when you're talking about a corporate trustee, not every corporate trustee is the same. Different people have different personalities, you know, and, you know, the one trustee might be a little more like a mom, you know, and one might be a little more like, oh, you know, a little more rigid. And so you, you got to kind of feel out what would you want um, your child to have, you know, and what would be a good fit for them? And sometimes just meeting them And, you know, knowing, you know, whether personalities will clash or not, you know, is an important thing to do in advance. And don't rush the decision. I always say that. Make sure you have a good lineup. So it's kind of like when you're thinking about baseball, right? Like you got to have backups. If your pitcher goes out there and like, you know, hurts his arm in the the second inning, inning. you got to have a backup. And so you got to have different people in your lineup. And so, you know, you name that first one, you name that backup, and then maybe a third or you have some kind of mechanism in there for another successor trustee to be chosen.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see a perfect example being like an, uh, a co-trustee where it's a corporate to do the fiduciary. Mm-hmm. Then you have um, uh, another trustee there, but he's kind of the head of a board of four or five people that are actively involved in that individual's life, the beneficiary's right. life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can kind of... Yeah, rotate
1: and that's what I kind of mentioned before with like the, you know, the trust protector scenario or like you said a trust board you know sometimes that doesn't have to be just one person it can be multiple people um you know maybe it's the caregiver and a relative and a doctor or you know something someone like from that. the church someone from the church yeah something like that who all know different aspects of that you know beneficiary's life that can kind of all come to the table to help decide what's best
0: so i kind of jumped ahead i'm looking at the next slide here <laughs> that's done.
1: I like to are anticipating because it means that what I'm saying is kind of kind
0: it's of flowing. flowing. So don't you love these things? They keep the uh, the water cold forever.
1: Well, and I drink more water when I have this giant cup with me. I drink so much more water, and I feel better throughout the day.
0: I feel like a five year old kid because I like to get these little straws.
1: Oh <laughs> yeah, mine doesn't have a straw. I need one. I need to get one of those aluminum straws because I feel bad about throwing all the paper plastic.
0: Yeah, no, I feel bad too. Okay, let's go into trustee.
1: Um, Yeah, so again, role of the trustee is probably one of the most important, if not the most important decision when you're talking about special needs trust and any trust really for that matter, Um, because they're going to invest and manage the assets of the trust and they're going to be in charge of making distributions to the beneficiary. So sometimes you want somebody who's going to be nice and warm and fuzzy, but sometimes you don't. Like somebody, you, you need somebody who's going to say no and, you know. I've had this happen in special needs cases before Where, like let's say somebody has a traumatic brain injury but generally speaking you know they look fine they act fine nobody would know they have any type of disability and they've got people in their lives that are out to take advantage of them and they are calling 24 7 to ask for money for different things and you this is another advantage of the corporate trustee is they can say no without having any relationship there as far as they're not worried about hurting anybody's feelings you know whereas if if I'm the trustee of my brother's trust and I tell him no then there's you know I mean his mom could get mad at me my dad could get mad at you know there's different like things out there that could play into that family dynamics
0: it's tough to be to have tough love in that scenario
1: that's right yeah I had another just quick example of a client that we had That she was the trustee for two special needs trusts for both her brother and her sister, okay? One, the brother was like so rude and terrible to her. And I think he had lots of mental issues, but he would like call up here and tell us about how she was the devil incarnate and all these different things about his sister. And so she got out of that one, you know, and then she came to us on the one with the sister and she was just like, I cannot handle this anymore because she is wearing me out. She calls me every day to ask for money. Mm. Every day. And it was affecting their relationship. And she kind of felt like I can't be her sister mm. anymore. You know, because I have to just be uh, you know, kind of a authority figure in her life and tell her no.
0: Yeah. So the corporate trustee could, you know, and then you could say, look, I don't manage the the money right there. You got to call the corporate trustee and see if you guys can get more money.
1: That's right. And then, you know, the corporate trustee has the cop out of, well, I got to check with you know, which pros and cons, but they usually have a committee they have to go to on requests, and so that they're making sure they're doing things properly because if they aren't, they could get sued. And so they well, want to make sure they're doing it the right way.
0: And all these things are to protect the beneficiary. You know, the beneficiary might be giving this money away. That's right. Uh, to people that are trying to take advantage. Yeah. Um, so I know there's steps in there and there has to be some tough love. But in the end, this all comes down to helping the beneficiary live That's the right. best life they can. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, you know, for anybody uh, that's listening uh, that has an individual say, well, it sounds like they're taking advantage or not giving that, uh, you know, that money to the people that's supposed to be serving, uh, and that money's going there. It's just you know, we ask for twenty thousand dollars one month. There should be some red flags that go up. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's keep going on the uh, trustee page here. Um, so this we kind of went over.
1: Yeah. And I want to mention there at the bottom, just the trust appointer. So that is another mechanism of like, hey, I only have one or two in mind, but I can include a provision in there that gives someone the power to appoint a trustee if there's another one that's needed later down the road.
0: And like you said, that could happen if somebody gets, I don't want to say burn out, but that relationship is strained.
1: Yeah. A lot of times if nobody has anybody in mind, our firm will serve in that role and not because I want to or I like that, but just because People feel comfortable with us doing that and the appointing. Again, we're not going to be the trustee. We don't want to serve as the trustee. It's more of just like helping them out in a situation where they need
0: somebody else. Yeah, helping that transition. Yeah.
1: <clears throat> so again, we've kind of discussed some of this, but there's different types of trustees. So there's the individual, the corporate, the co-trustee arrangement, and the trustee appointer or trust protector, which I think we've, you know, generally
0: covered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we did go over that. And and you did a great job with this uh, presentation because these, <laughs> these questions are coming up.
1: Thanks. Okay. okay, let's
0: go into ABLE accounts.
1: Yeah, ABLE accounts. So I kind of referred to this a little bit earlier, but so this is a new option that's out there and some people are talking about it as an alternative to special needs trust. So ABLE is um, you know short for the achieving a better life experience account. Um, and it's similar, it's actually established under the same code as a 529 plan. Um, so for y'all that might be familiar with 529 plans, you know, you can put money in there, you know, tax-free, and the 529 is usually for college. Well, this one is for uh, disabled individuals, and so you can actually put money into an account for, and it's in the name of the person with special needs. It's in, it's like an account in their name, and it's a nice way for them to have a little bit of spending money, you know, and it goes into this account. They're still able to maintain their benefits. Um, you can put up to fifteen thousand a year in it, and for practical purposes, the limit on an able account is a hundred thousand total. Um, but fifteen thousand so a year.
0: Could you use um, a third-party uh, trust and an able account?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the one catch is the able account is still going to have a payback attached to it. So you know, okay. you don't want to put money that could potentially go in a third party into the able, but if you do have first party money, you know, and let's say, um, you know, you earned $5,000 in income from a job that you're working, you know, you could take that and put that into the able account while you still have the third party trust that's paying for, you know, some of your supplemental needs.
0: Yeah. So <clears throat> I was just thinking, what are some examples that you would, you would put it into the enable and the for, uh, third party as well?
1: Right. Yeah. So that's that's one, you know, when the individual's got income that they're earning or let's say they have the third party and then they inherit a little bit of money. You know, they can take some of that money and put it in to the to the enable account or the ABLE account and utilize it that way.
0: OK, let's um let's keep going on the ABLE account here.
1: Sure. So.
0: ABLE basics. Yes.
1: Yeah, so. The ABLE basics, so generally just the, I tried to hit the bullet points of what you need to know about ABLE. So, again, yeah. you have
0: to so be, I didn't, I didn't know the age 26 there.
1: Yes. Yeah, so they have to be in disabled before age 26. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if it's after 26, ABLE is not going to be an option for them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and I guess that's why it's sort of in the same line of legislation as the 529, because it's designed for you know, those younger beneficiaries. And there's actually a provision that allows you to convert now a 529 plan to an ABLE account. Now, um, what
0: are some of the qualifications for expenses, acceptable expenses out of an ABLE account? Can it well, be used on anything?
1: Because they're still issuing regulations on it, but it's generally similar to what we think is going to be general, generally similar to what you can spend for, you know, any s So, okay. you know, to pay for medical needs, to pay for a computer, to pay for anything that they need that's not housing, basically.
0: Because the 529 is just for education, correct?
1: That's right. Yeah. So it's not limited to education. Yeah. So, um, and again, the practical limit on that account is $100,000. And then if you have more than that, then that's going to affect your Medicaid
0: eligibility. Uh, and then, so here we have the website form. <clears throat> right. Enable so that's the Alabama al- plan.
1: You don't have to utilize the Alabama plan. You can utilize one that's out of state, but that is the one that's um, been established in Alabama. And I think on the next slide, I have one linked from another state. So that's the Ohio uh, plan there.
0: So what's the difference between the states?
1: So they all just have to have one that they manage. I think the regulation says they all have to have one Um, And there's actually some that the states have set up, but they have, it allows them to let other states run it administratively for them, if that makes sense. So I don't know who actually is running Alabamas, but for example, if Alabama said, okay, I don't really, we don't have the administrative people to run this thing, like I can just pay Tennessee to run it for me. It's still an Alabama account, but Tennessee's managing it. What do you think
0: sense. would be the uh, benefit of going to a different state's ABLE organization?
1: You know, I think you could just look at maybe the different options that they have. Um, Investment
0: strategies that. kind of thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the fees associated with it. You know, maybe you feel like one is more advantageous for you than another. Um, that might be the way to go.
0: Okay. Uh, let me go ahead and go back um, here. And we'll continue with ABLE counts.
1: Yeah, and so it, you know, it could be a good idea to go ahead and if you have a child or a loved one with special needs that was disabled before age 26, go ahead and set up an ABLE account for them now so that you have it established and you can put a nominal amount of money in there, whatever it is, $100. Um, and then you have it and it's available immediately. So if you need to dump some cash into it for whatever reason, like let's say they got too much in December and we got to get it out before you know January 1st I already have the account open and I don't have that lag time Mm -hmm. of setting it up, you know, because sometimes that could be a process that could take 30 days. I can go ahead and have that open and then I could dump some income that came in that was if I was over the limit that month.
0: Yeah. Um, Does it it cost anything to up for upkeep on? You have the membership fee for an enable account or is just.
1: I think it's just the one time setup cost and then it's going to be, you know, whatever fees they take out on the the investment side of things, but yeah, I think you're guaranteed whatever you put into it, you will recoup at least that amount of money. So okay.
0: Um, I'm going to pull the slides back up when you have a good example here about, uh, Bob. And I, I think it's funny how you go back to Bob.
1: <laughs> so again, in our prior example, he's Bob inheriting the $36,000 from his mom, but what if he had, um, an ABLE account. So assuming he was disabled prior to 26, he would be able to put $15,000 of that 36,000 into an ABLE account. So then he has $21,000 remaining. He can keep $2,000 in his name, you know, for income for the month, and then he would only have to spend $19,000 down. And if, for example, Bob needed a car, he could buy the car for $19,000 and then he has an exempt resource. So, because as we talked about before, the car doesn't count towards their asset limits. And so, it's kind of like, bam, bam. Yeah, it's know.
0: like getting it off the books. <laughs>
1: That's right.
0: And, uh, no, uh, uh, in a very legal way, you know. Anyway. That's right.
1: Yeah. Using those tools is just, you know, all about having those tools and those different options.
0: Yeah. And this is, uh, I mean, it's, it's crazy and cool that there are all these there are all these tools. And I feel like there are a lot of people in the, in the community and the IDDD community that maybe are younger. Maybe they have a child that's five years old and they haven't really thought about this stuff yet. And it can, can seem very daunting. They hear about attorneys and lawyers and trusts. And the first thing that comes to my mind is this is way over my head. Right. Um, but yeah, there are a
1: lot of people who sit around and, you know, Think about these things, Um, you know, there's actually a, a bar of attorneys who advocate for people with special needs, you know, with special needs trusts, and they're actually one of the ones who got the exemption in the SECURE Act for the disabled beneficiaries and so there's a lot of good people out there who are advocating for people who have disabilities to get some of this good tax treatment on these things, and it's important. Um, I mean, it's just something that we need, and, and I'm glad that they're there doing it. So, yeah. we're not doing any like federal leg- legislation work here at Cardi Die. We're just kind of trying to do the day to day things um, to help people in Birmingham and and in Alabama.
0: Well, it hurts when you hear the president, you know, billionaire pays 700 bucks in taxes. Right. Uh, You know, you want to to make sure that your loved one is uh, also using tools.
1: That's right. That's right.
0: Okay. Other... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry.
1: No, I was just going to say we're going to maximize what's available. That's for sure.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, So other exempt resources. We kind of went over this a little bit before.
1: Yeah, we touched on the house and the car. Um, Also, any personal effects that you have, Um, the life insurance policy. Um, Again, that's not going to be counted. And then any burial policy that you have, um, because unfortunately or fortunately, um, you know, one of the things that I'm counseling families about when we're setting up the first-party trust is to go ahead and do a prepaid burial because um, the payback provision in Alabama does not allow you to pay for burial before Medicaid is paid back.
0: Oh, you got to be kidding me! I feel like that would be I'm not
1: kidding you number one there. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So if someone passes away and um, in a first-party trust <clears throat> there's fifty thousand dollars in there, and their funeral costs five thousand dollars, they had to pay back all of Medicaid before paying for funeral expenses out of that trust. That's right. Mm.
1: Yeah, I, I don't like it. I don't. I don't know if I can justify the reasoning there. I think maybe I don't know if there were some people who took advantage of that in the past. Um,
0: and had like a twenty thousand yeah. dollar or something.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um,
0: Own the funeral parlor or funeral homes. Yeah,
1: Right. So I, you know, as hard as it is, I usually counsel families, like if we're setting up one of these first parties, let's go ahead. And first thing we do is have the trust buy, you know, a prepaid funeral plan for that individual. And then you have it ready to go and you don't have to worry about it and stress out about it at the time.
0: Now, you've also listed listed personal effects. Um, Would that be something like jewelry or what would that be?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, like your jewelry, your furniture, you know, basically the stuff that you have in your house, you know, all those normal things that you and I have couches, televisions, different things like that. That's not going to count against them because if you went around and added up, okay, all the stuff in my house, it's like
0: this is five bucks, this is 20 bucks. (laughs)
1: That's right. But I think if you stretch it, you could argue, okay well, this is worth over two thousand so you're disqualified, right? So they yeah. don't want to get into a and it's hard with personal property too you know I mean if it's something that's not insured, I mean how are you going to know really what the value is? you know it's just what is another individual willing to pay for my used couch?
0: So it almost sounds like the non-exempt resources are are mainly financial uh, in uh, right. money, monetary cash and
1: real property other than the first home so i've had that come up in a lot of scenarios where um like let's say there's family property you know and that's really big to us in the south you know you might have heard everybody talking
0: grounds gonna go A
1: family farm you know whatever it is that's passed down through generations and there's some trust out there that says You know, this is set to go to my kid, and my kid has special needs. You know, what do I do about that? And so there's different things that we can do, kind of planning tools to get around that, to kind of make sure
0: um, that the farm still stays in the family and doesn't go to Medicaid after that. That's right.
1: That's right. And if we have the option to do the third party, you know, we would change it to to make sure that the whatever's there goes. If they're going to inherit it, it goes to them in a third party trust. Or maybe we just give it to other family members and then we sort of count, you know, kind of balance out the disabled beneficiary with other resources, with other, you know, estate resources.
0: Okay, let's keep going with the slideshow here. Uh, Preparing for my child's future.
1: So these are just kind of some practical tips that I sort of wanted to put together, you know, um, if we had a little extra time. Um, so if we're going over, feel free to cut me off, but I, um, uh,
0: No, we'll go through these. We won't spend as much time on them as we did the trust. Help.
1: Sure. So just thinking about things to think about when you're preparing for planning your, your child's future is what financial benefits are there? What am I going to leave behind? You know, thinking about their health care. what is that going to look like? Are they going to need Medicaid? Are they going to have private insurance? You know, like for example, with my brother, He's able to stay on my dad's health insurance at least as long as my dad's alive, you know. And so, different companies have different things. Of course, that could go away at any time.
0: Uh, one of the things I'd like to see is Medicaid pay for dental. 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 Yeah. Dental. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah. That would be, I mean, that makes sense to me. I mean, you know they say that your mouth you know your dental health is like kind of an indicator of all your other aspects of health and it's related to heart disease it's related to a whole bunch of other things and so if you don't have good dental health you're not going to have a, a good health in many other ways so
0: yeah it, it seems like a good investment from a healthcare standpoint to invest exactly. in uh, dental health for you know especially people that have um, some disabilities yes ex- exactly okay financial benefits
1: yeah so again find out, research, consider, you know, maybe you don't have, maybe your loved one doesn't get benefits right now. I think it's worth investigating, you know, taking a little bit of time, consider applying for SSI, which they would be um, eligible for starting at age 18. Um, And again, that's a little confusing because it's 19 is the age of majority here in Alabama, but since it's a federal benefit, you can actually receive it at 18 because that's the federal age. Um, And then you actually can get SSI benefits prior to 18, but it's rare unless, you know, you come from a a parental household that doesn't have a lot of income either, because usually they're going to deem the parents' income to that individual, and so they disqualify them for that reason.
0: Yeah, it would be like any other kid, um, except for extremely rare cases. That's right.
1: And then Uh, the Social Security benefits, the SSI, which we discussed, you know, you get the 783 per month. That's right now is the maximum. Um, And then the difference between the SSI and the SSDI we discussed earlier. The SSDI is based on a work record and it's not dependent on income or assets.
0: That's kind of like a a regular Social Security. You pay into it and you get it back.
1: Yes, similar. Mm -hmm. But This is based on disability prior to 65.
0: Now, does it keep going after 65 or they cut it off there?
1: It's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. My guess would be they probably cut it off at 65 and then you start getting whatever normal, you know, benefit you would have gotten. But yeah, I,
0: I don't good. imagine they'd let you double dip there.
1: No, you don't get both for sure. What they do usually is they say, okay, you're el- when you go into Social Security and you apply, they'll say you're eligible for this, you're eligible for this this one is the higher of the two so we're going to let you take the higher so like in theory everybody who qualifies for ssdi could also qualify for ssi but they take the ssdi because it's usually a higher much higher benefit amount
0: gotcha i'm glad the government works with us like that
1: yeah they do at least it's one perk (laughs) (laughs) um and then again you can go online and research you can actually begin the social security application process yourself online at the website there at ssa.gov um, you know, I've heard a lot of feedback. We don't do social security you know, work as far as the actual getting you on social security, but I have attorney friends who do do that work and I've heard from them that usually they'll recommend, go ahead and apply on your own. And then if you're denied, then at that point, that's when you need to go talk to an attorney. Um, a lot of people are denied the first time. So it almost takes that first application to sort of get the real process going
0: um How do you think so many people are denied the first time
1: i think they're just trying to weed people out and wait out to see if you're going to actually appeal yeah sadly
0: it's kind of a, a mo or a barrier yeah and i'm sure there are quite a, a, a number of good population that doesn't uh try and get it a second time
1: no absolutely i see people that come into our office that it, i know could be getting benefits and they're not because they just don't want to deal with the
0: process that's involved and that could be daunting, filling out all that paperwork online. I read something the other day, Verizon Wireless got in a lot of trouble. They tried upping everyone's, there was a certain percentage of their bills, uh, mm-hmm. their customers by like 1%. And they figured it was no justification. They figured nobody would pay attention. Pay attention. And, you, and even if they did pay attention, they wouldn't call back in. And they ended up making like 65 extra million dollars just by raising it 1%. And only like 3% of the people called back in to have it reduced by 1%. Yeah
1: it's ridiculous. I also think there's a stigma in some communities about uh, getting government benefits. And so I think there are some people who are out there that are like, I don't want to take anything from the government. You know, I, you know, we work hard. We're not a family who takes stuff. Um, And, you know, I see people that come in my door all the time that say that, and I respect that. I mean, I'm not going to, you know, argue with them about it. But I would say, I think if you could do something that's going to better your child's life, I would look into doing that. You know, it's different when you're talking about just you, but if you're talking about being responsible for another person and there's something out there that could benefit them, I think, you know, just kind of looking into those
0: options is smart. I had somebody that uh, when the coronavirus happened, <clears throat> he had to cut back work and, and stop working, and he said he wasn't going to get an un- unemployment because right. he wasn't going to take money from the government. I'm going, why? Yeah, but, hey, you know that's just the way he he wanted to do it. And, mm-hmm. um, but I think you know, like you said, if there's somebody else that's relying on that long term, right, that can be a big motivator to go through with it. Absolutely. Uh, okay, as we're finishing up here, let's go back to healthcare benefits.
1: Okay. So again just kind of going through that medicaid is needs based medicare is not in alabama or i guess really federally if you get ssdi you automatically get medicare within two years or in two years after two years of being on disability Um, so those are options for health care and then there's the private insurance option i was actually talking to an attorney today that i'm going to help set up a special needs trust and he was trying to help walk through the scenarios with his client about do we go on like a private pay insurance, like through Obamacare, or do we, you know, go set up the special needs trust and get on Medicaid? And so there's pros and cons to both of those, you know, and it may just depend on uh, like factors like, you know, life expectancy and different things like that, you know, is the payback worth it? If not, you may just want to try some private insurance for a while and see how that goes.
0: And Get dental.
1: Yes, and get dental.
0: (laughs) Brush your teeth. (laughs) Brush your teeth, floss, and get dental. Um, Was there anything that uh, I haven't asked that you think uh, the community would really benefit from from learning or hearing about today?
1: No, not really. That I can think of. I just think it's just getting the knowledge out there about special needs trust and just the fact that it's an available option. I think the number one thing I hear from people who have. Individuals or children with special needs in their lives are, I didn't even really know this was an option. And they are so overwhelmed with just the day to day aspects of caregiving for a child or an adult with special needs that, you know, they either don't know about it or they keep putting it on the back burner. You know, it's kind of like being a mom and you always put yourself last. Well, being the caregiver, you always put yourself last um, or always put the special needs trust last. And I think really that's one of the number one things you should be doing is planning for them, maximizing the benefits that are available to you, which can help open up the door for other resources. And then two, just plan something for, I know it's hard, but plan something for when, what's gonna happen when you're not gonna be there because that will happen someday. And it's important to address it now rather than later Um, because we've had people walk in our door that were like, okay, I've had a special needs child. He's thirty years old. He's I have nobody else. I'm I have terminal cancer. I have a month to live. What do I do? You know, and I'd rather plan that. You know, five to six years before that actually happened. You know, if she had come in and done the planning. We would have had more options available to us.
0: Yeah, and, and it eats away at you. You know, in the back of my mind, there are things that I need to get done. I'm thinking, what do I need to do for you know, ten years from now? Right. And, and trying to get those done earlier. And then uh, I love how you say, you know, get it done earlier, and then you can utilize a lot of these tax advantages. That's right. Uh, um, and those will end up paying dividends. it will pay for the cost of everything or the exactly. upfront costs, uh, mm-hmm. and continue paying dividends down the down the road. There, um, are there any upcoming events or? anything that you would recommend people pay attention to uh, or anything that you would recommend people engage with?
1: Not really that I can think of off the top of my head. Um, You know, the the new tax law changes that are going to be coming are always kind of on the the forefront of my mind, but I think with regard to where we are and getting all the new you know even if, when the new president you know takes over and all that stuff i think we're going to be still looking at good tax advantages for people with disabilities so i think we're in really good stead there awesome
0: uh well mrs die i'd like to say uh thank you for being with us here today
1: oh well thank you for having me i
0: appreciate it and um next month we will also have somebody i'm not sure who will be our guest next month from uh carne die but we always enjoy um yeah, all three of you guys. So. Keep uh, you <laughs> That's me. So I should be doing the thing a little ahead of time. Um, but no, thank you for spending the time with us today. And um, we don't have any questions at this point, but I will go ahead and uh, upload the video to YouTube and then we'll chop it up into clips. Okay, perfect. Um, uh, at this point, I'm going to go ahead and end the broadcast. Mrs. Dye, you have a great rest of your day. All right, you too. Bye-bye.